This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by Pivot BioProven 40 OS. The nitrogen you need, now on seed. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McRae. Crops need nutrients to grow, but what and how we apply those nutrients continues to change with technology and sustainability programs. While the need for the big three, N, P, and K, remains, what does the supply and demand curve look like for those and other crop inputs? We discuss the coming year and beyond for fertilizer and how global conflicts are changing the flow of those crop nutrients to different nations. It's our topic for this week's Farming the Countryside, brought to you by Pivot Bio. Harvest is done for most of us, and for those of us that are already looking to crops next year, we may have our seed and many of our inputs in place. One of the inputs I already have scheduled is Pivot BioProven 40 OS. In fact, this will be the fifth year in a row that I've used the product. So why do I use Pivot BioProven 40? Well, it's predictability that's right on the corn seed. Pivot BioProven 40 on seed gives growers more flexibility with their nitrogen plant. It's the first on-seed nitrogen, and all U.S. corn growers have access to the game-changing technology. Pivot Bio products contain naturally occurring microbes that fix nitrogen from the air and provide it directly to corn plants all season long. Those microbes can supply up to the equivalent of 40 pounds of synthetic nitrogen fertilizer. I hope you'll learn more. Just contact your local sales rep or go to pivotbio.com. Corey Rosenbush originally hails from Glen Rose, Texas. He's been around agriculture all of his life and today finds himself as president and CEO of the Fertilizer Institute. As you'll hear in a moment, that role has him in touch with suppliers, dealers, and end users of many fertilizer products and makes him keenly aware of changes in the national and global industry. We spend time looking at the short-term, supply and demand, and what to expect for next year, but also the long-term, as farmers continue to work to grow more with less and to use sustainable practices for the nutrients they apply to their fields. I think you'll find our conversation interesting, especially the part about the flow of some of those fertilizers from foreign nations to the U.S. and vice versa. Corey Rosenbush joins me. He is president and CEO of the Fertilizer Institute. Corey, thanks for the time here. And, you know, maybe we should just start off with the Fertilizer Institute some people may not know exactly who that is and, and what you do. So why don't I simply just begin there? Well, th- thanks, Andrew. And, and the Fertilizer Institute is the trade association representing the entire fertilizer supply chain in Washington, D.C. So we have member companies that range from the manufacturers of NP&K to distributors, wholesalers, importers, and their ag retailer that's delivering fertilizer to the farmers. And uh, we advocate and provide business solutions uh, to all of our member companies. So as we think about the farming season, you know, a lot of people are already putting on NP and K for the next growing season. But I think that we're always interested in what supply and demand looks like and and where prices are. So maybe you can give us the big broad view of, of where things stand right now. Absolutely. That is that is the question of the day. And I, I think you have to start by looking back on uh, what we would uh, describe as uh, a lot of volatility we've experienced over the last few years in the fertilizer market. Uh, early in 2023, we saw the landing. And for, for most companies, I'd say it was a soft landing. 
people remember back in 2008 when everything crashed. And, and in this particular case, I think everyone was pretty cautious, but, but that didn't cover everyone across the board. I think, you know, what a lot of people uh, have to understand about ag retailers that are taking positions on NPNK is that they're buying that product and securing those nutrients last year. And then as the market begins to move, having to respond uh, to, you know, what the market's doing and, and of course, what farmers uh, want to buy for. And so we did see some companies that had to write off some inventory in, in the millions of dollars. I think most member companies, most ag retailers and, and distributors were able to, to mitigate that. So as we look forward to the upcoming season, uh, I will tell you, everyone that I spoke with pulled that inventory down to zero. Uh, people did not want sheds um, uh, having any of that inventory going into the fall. So we've, we, you know, we've seen a really strong uh, um, buying season and will continue going into spring. Uh, I've heard anecdotally from a few of our member companies that they're going to have some of the strongest uh, application of fall anhydrous uh, that they've had in a really long time. Um, I think some of that has to do with some early harvest, uh, strong crop prices, and then the market softening, the fertilizer market softening a bit from where it was the last two years. As we think back to the, the COVID years, what did we learn as far as supply and demand? Were there things that we did differently? Was it simply just, you know, COVID affected a lot of people in the, the supply chain and so forth? Are there any lessons we learned? Because you mentioned that they were going to take that inventory down to zero. Was that something we learned from that? Or is that totally different from what uh, that we experienced two and three years ago? Yeah, I think that they're, they're related, but definitely two different issues. I mean, from a from a COVID perspective, one of the things that we learned was just how sensitive the supply chain is. So natural gas is the feedstock uh, for uh, all ammonia-based fertilizers. And, you know, when, when a lot of those plants weren't able to do deferred maintenance and had to delay them, and then we ended up having like 12 ammonia plants all go through deferred maintenance at the same time, uh, that had an impact. Obviously, the winter weather that impacted the natural gas situation in Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana disrupted things. And, and I, I think generally speaking, uh, folks that wanted to take a wait and see approach to see what was going to happen with markets uh, moving fertilizer and positioning it up and down the river in the right places, it, particularly because we're an, we're an importer of fertilizer product. 90% of all fertilizer is consumed outside the U.S., uh, so we are a net importer. That means it has to be uh, in the right place at the right time, and we're very sensitive to some of those supply chain shocks. I think that then leads into the second, kind of somewhat unrelated, was just geopolitics uh, had a big impact on our industry. 40% of potash coming from Belarus and Russia that really had to shift trade flow patterns during the war had a significant disruption as well to that supply chain. We're, we're fortunate that, that most of our potash, about 85%, comes from Canada. Um, but nonetheless, even, even that supply chain shift is going to have an impact on what the price a farmer pays here in America. Um, what what China and India does and Brazil does matter. You know, as we think about some of those economies, uh, China, Brazil, even India coming on uh, with big populations, how will we consume fertilizer differently, if that makes sense? Because you mentioned so much is sourced from places outside the United States. Does that give pause to people here in the United States that, wow, 
fertilizer chain or supply chain could be a problem going forward because we simply can't get it imported into our country or is it should it be something we think much about at all well yes and yes we've we've had a lot of interesting conversations over the last two years because unlike the crop protection industry we we don't have a branded product you're you're not applying potash and knowing where it's coming from or what logos on uh, on that that potash so I think at the end of the day, price matters most. Um, you know, farmers want to get the cheapest possible input costs they can, no matter where it comes from. I think at the same time, they now recognize and are sensitive to the fact that, uh, you know, sourcing that product or being reliant upon uh, unstable foreign suppliers can have a pretty significant impact. And so, We've been really focused in D.C. on what we would call bolstering supply. Well, yes, that does mean ensuring that we can import it, but it also means making sure domestic production uh, is able to do what the, the maximize what it can do for the American farmer. And probably one of the biggest limitations is the fact that, you know, God put potash and phosphate in specific places uh, around the world. And so you can't just turn on uh, that faucet to get more potash and phosphate. But we do have supply and we need proper permitting and permitting reform to ensure that we can uh, access those reserves and ensure that we are growing that domestic supply when possible. You mentioned Russia and Belarus there. How much has the war there impacted that supply or have we just found different sources now we can pull even more from Canada? Well, we're going through our market outlooks right now. And um, two things that I, that I learned uh, even as late as this morning was that one, Russia had a record export year of fertilizer last year. So despite the fact that four of the oligarchs own these big fertilizer companies and were sanctioned by Europe and Canada and the UK, and by the way, the United States did not sanction uh, those companies. Matter of fact, we exempted fertilizer uh, from any sanctions so that it could continue to be imported so that the grower did have that access to those nutrients. Um, they have found their way... Uh, to different parts of the world. And probably one of the most fascinating stories, just to illustrate this, is UAN is used in in uh, Europe, but Europe sanctioned so much of the Russian UAN. And so we began to export UAN to Europe, into Europe. And that same vessel would then get loaded with Russian UAN and come back to the U.S. Uh, to supply the American farmer. And so you just saw really bizarre trade show, trade flow patterns and so when you think about what drove up price, that tells you how these things grow, grow, drove up price. And then that product shifts to Brazil or, or India or other places. So uh, Russia did, did fine. Uh, most of those oligarchs have now changed the ownership structure of their companies. And so they are now actively uh, exporting back into to Europe and some of these other countries again. Belarus is a bit of a different story, although their potash imports did come back online. Their challenge was they didn't have a port as a landlocked country. They were having to go through the country of Klaipeda and or sorry, through uh, Lithuania, the port of Klaipeda. And they blocked that Belarusian exports, uh, Belarusian potash export. Now it's started to find its way by rail into Russia and then be exported out of St. Petersburg. So it's worked its way out, but it's had a price impact. You're right. Very interesting about what's what's taking place, because, as you mentioned, with especially with P&K, we don't have domestic supply or very much. Is there much that we can do to ramp up production? Now, nitrogen might be a different story, but I'm interested, Have we? what have we seen 
try to be done here in the U.S.? Because you mentioned some efforts to try to help uh, suppliers here. Yeah, so we're in a really good position from a nitrogen standpoint because we have some of the cheapest natural gas uh, in the world. And we have an abundant supply of natural gas. So the marginal producer is now Europe. So that's where prices get set because they are having uh, natural gas issues. We saw something in the neighborhood of 70% of nitrogen in Europe uh, producer, ammonia producers shut down because of uh, natural gas rising above $100 per MMBTU uh, last year. Whereas the U.S., we, were, we only got up to like $12 or so. Uh, so we will remain competitive from a, an ammonia production standpoint as long as policymakers don't do harm into our ability to uh, produce natural gas and have good sound energy policy. So that's the wild card, and that's one of the things we advocate for. P&K is a little bit different. There are reserves out there. We, we can uh, uh, particularly uh, access some more phosphate reserves. Uh, but permitting is just a big challenge. So one company um, took 10 years and $32 million to get their permit for a phosphate mine that was finally granted this summer. So this is not something you can just literally walk out the door and turn a switch and get more phosphate. That's that's the kind of time frame it takes to, to get more uh, of that uh, rock out of the ground. So you're telling me I shouldn't try to break into the phosphate mining business. It probably <laughs> not unless you have a lot of capital and a lot of patience. Right, right. Hey, let's switch over for a moment to I think something else that is on farmers' minds more in the long term. We're always concerned about supply and demand in the short term and what that means for my pricing. But we continue to hear, of course, a lot about sustainability. And I think farmers would always say, hey, I'm trying to do the right thing and be sustainable. But I'm curious from the Fertilizer Institute's perspective, as we have more discussions about sustainability and how we are going to use fertilizer, number one, and how we use it more wisely, smartly, and so forth, just give me the, the overview of the discussions you all are having with member companies about what you see going forward in the marketplace and how farmers are going to use or maybe even be required to utilize fertilizers. Well, we believe we have a, a great story to tell when it comes to sustainability. Uh, the, the fertilizer industry has two opportunities to make an impact uh, uh, on, on sustainability initiatives. First, on the production side, uh, because we are such a significant natural gas user and CO2 emitter, um, new technologies and, and adoption of low carbon ammonia, which is uh, the latest fad in the industry, uh, we, we can capture significant amounts of CO2 on the production side. But then when we switch to the, the producer side, m most most growers uh, know of, of the 4R Nutrient Stewardship Program. And that's really been our flagship program to encourage growers to apply fertilizer using the 4Rs, the right source, uh, rate, time, and place. Um, what, what we have tried to do more recently is to uh, uh, captured data that quantifies not only the economic impact of the 4R, so how much money can be saved through variable rate application, uh, soil testing, and using the 4Rs, but, but we're also now trying to capture the economic impact, how much greenhouse gas emissions are curved because of using the 4Rs. So we select advocates every year, farmers that are doing the right thing and, and showing good for our practices. And we bring them into D.C. and we take them to Commodity Classic 
we know that farmers will learn from other farmers and that uh, they they have some good practices that will make a make a big impact on the sustainability story, and then I think as a whole industry working with growers on on technology. Uh, we recently had the Biostimulant Coalition be, uh, become a part of TFI. It's now under the TFI umbrella, and and so using biologicals and biostimulants in conjunction with traditional NP and K fertilizers to help make sure that we're using fertilizer efficiently and we're not losing it to the environment is a big part of our dialogue and conversation. Uh, so whether it's uh, inhibitors or coatings or those biologicals, we believe technology plays a big part um, in our sustainability story. Do you foresee as we move down the road that uh, perhaps suppliers and farmers will somehow have to work more closely together to somehow report what they're doing and, and quantify how they're saving fertilizer, not using as much to, to, to quantify then what their sustainability story is, how it's linked to the crops they're growing, or, or what do you see down the road? Yeah, so I'll just throw out a crazy kind of futuristic prediction. Uh, my friends over at the American Beverage Association a few years ago launched an initiative when they got when they were attacked by, you know, um, health health uh, trends on sugary drinks. And so pick up a beverage, look at a can, and you will see a uniform marking of the calories in that can. And it's the same regardless of what beverage you're drinking. Uh, I believe there might be a day in the future, not too distant future, where food manufacturers start printing on their label uh, the carbon footprint of the bag of chips uh, or the package of bacon or uh, even the soda that, to accompany that calorie sign. And so I, I do think uh, food companies, uh, manufacturers, and growers are going to be uh, asked to capture that carbon footprint of what's produced one day and that consumers, or, or at least a category of consumers, could we say, because uh, no offense, but we don't all shop at Whole Foods, uh, but that type of consumer may buy based upon the carbon footprint of, footprint of the product that they're going to be consuming. Maybe it's too early to have an answer to this, but if we move toward that, what do you think that might look like for the average farmer as far as what they might be asked to do? I don't want to say required. Sometimes it's an opt-in type of program, but what kinds of things could we be looking at? Well, I, I, don't, think there, I don't think you can ask any farmer to do anything unless they're going to be incentivized or compensated for it. So you know, we asked the question in our recent industry trend survey with our low carbon ammonia. So you, you probably hear of that as green or blue ammonia. Uh, we're trying to move away from the color scheme and, and talk about what the carbon intensity of the ammonia is that's produced. And and so uh, we asked the question whether that would be a viable product in the marketplace that a farmer would pay more for uh, without incentive uh, incentives. And, and the answer was like 80% overwhelmingly no. So I, I think there's going to have to be a market condition that would um, ask a farmer to, to do things like purchase a more expensive low carbon ammonia uh, where a, a premium might be offered um, by, the, by the food company um, that's ultimately going to buy those crops. So I, I think that that's one thing, thing that's going to have to be considered. Um, and then I, I think the other piece is that it, it's going to be difficult to ask growers to uh, go through the complexity of tracking and reporting and quantifying some of the things that perhaps a sophisticated 
uh, buyer uh, of those crops might want. And that's where uh, ag retailers, our ag retailers are going to have to be that trusted partner. They have the systems, they have the, the data platforms to be able to offer that as a tool and a service to the grower. Corey, we hear a lot these days about synthetic nitrogen and that perhaps uh, we'll put in quotes that that is bad. We need to move away from this or try different things. And and certainly some of these types of things, cover crops, those sorts of things have been around for many, many years. And that's a way that I would have natural fertilizers and so forth. I'm just curious with your role at the Fertilizer Institute, how you begin to balance some of those types of things. Because in some cases, you have companies that are supplying products that are both synthetic and, and non-synthetic, and they're they're trying to do multiple things. How are those discussions playing out uh, among the members? Yeah, no, it's a it's a great question, and and you know as we as we brought on the bio biostimulant coalition, that was a popular one we we received. Is wait, don't don't some of these products actually reduce nitrogen use? Um, uh, we actually see them all working in harmony, and a lot of uh, fertilizer manufacturers are investing in these technologies. They're investing in the projects. Uh, products that are going to be tools to complement uh, nitrogen or phosphorus use. So I don't I don't think any of the manufacturer distributors want to see growers waste their money or to see any of these products lost to the environment. Um, but I don't think it it's it's a a single uh, source solution. It's gonna re- it, we're still gonna require what what we would call traditional NP and K products that can be used in conjunction with some of these uh, innovative products and technologies to help help us be more efficient with our fertilizer use. And we still have the challenge of, of being able to grow more product and feed more people. And uh, with increasing demand for industrial uh, products, so for example, uh, as we think about our EV uh, requirements and batteries, that means perhaps some of this phosphate uh, production is going to go into to battery production. And so it's, uh, there's not going to be a shortage of demand. It's, a, it's about partnering technologies and tools together, together to be most efficient. Corey, in the time we have left, other issues that you all are thinking about that you think farmers should be aware of is not only we move into the next planting season, but even further down the road. Yeah, so so obviously you've you've covered a uh, covered one, which was which is sustainability. Um, if there are growers out there that are that are doing really good and innovative practices, we would love for them to reach out to us and and their ag retailer because we would love to feature the impact uh, that that those growers are having. Uh, our major legislative push right now is really around critical minerals. So phosphate and potash have not been deemed critical by the United States government, and we believe strongly that the American farmer needs the, the access to those critical minerals and that permitting and, and supply can be maximized by that designation. Uh, and then, of course, we're working very closely on, on farm bill initiatives uh, that would include you know, so, some additional conservation programs, but also really designating our trusted um, crop advisors uh, to be able to work with growers to access some of those funds more efficiently. Right now, the the technical service providers that uh, are able to write those nutrient management plans to access those conservation dollars are somewhat limiting, and, and we want to broaden the the range of folks that can partner with growers to get to get access to that. 
So there's never a shortage of topics or issues to work on, but uh, those are just a, a, a few of the highlights. Corey, I appreciate the time. Very interesting uh, what's going on, not only here in this country, but around the world and some of the issues that you deal with. Well, we are thrust in, into the center stage of geopolitics. And so uh, even watching what happens in Israel right now is having, is having an impact and will continue to have an impact in the future. So keep your eyes, keep your eyes abroad because it will impact what you're doing here in the United States. That's our interview for this week's show. Remember, you can go back and catch past programs of interest at farmingthecountryside.com, or if you're listening on the podcast, just go to your favorite podcast platform and scroll through the archive. We try to have a variety of guests and topics of interest, so I hope that you'll go to those locations to find other shows of interest. And remember, you can follow Farming the Countryside and our daily show, American Countryside, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. Just type in Farming the Countryside or American Countryside. I appreciate you joining me. I'm Andrew McRae. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. This edition of Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by Pivot Bioproven 40 OS. The nitrogen you need, now on seed. Learn more at pivotbio.com.